Jesus, we are moving into the final days of your life on this planet. But God, I thank you that you, bo- you had witnesses there to, to record what took place in the garden. Because as always, Jesus, you modeled for us how we deal with suffering, how we deal with uncertainty, how we deal with pain. God, I pray for those in this room this morning that perhaps maybe going through a, a hard time, a dark time, that need something from you. God, I thank you that you are as close as our next breath. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you'd be released in this room and you'd bring to life the scriptures, that the ordeal that you went through, and others as well, as we will learn this morning, that we will know, God, that you were truly were one of us and that everything you experienced, everything that you did, you did for us. And I pray, God, that we would take that and we would bear it within our souls, within our being, and that it would change us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you all for coming. I want to say, if you were visiting with us this morning, we want to say thank you so much. I noticed that, uh, as I was saying on the uh, lobby there, a uh, few faces were coming through that I didn't recognize. So if you're visiting with us, we want to say thank you so much for joining us. Uh, at UCC, we are a community. This is not a performance. You are not an audience. We are a community. And because of that, we are, are, we are so happy to have each person here. But really, we're just happy to, to, to place ourselves in front of God's presence. That's it. Uh, we don't care so much about how smoothly things go and uh, the ups and downs. We are just hopefully trying to press into what God has for us from the testimonies of worship and, and hopefully in the teachings or as, some person, as one person said, my rants in the morning. Um, we're going to continue on a series we started off last week uh, called Echoes of Easter. We actually started off a couple weeks ago. This is our, our, our Easter sermon uh, series. And really what we want to do is we kind of look back at the Easter story and, and look at it in such a way that hopefully we can kind of get something fresh from it. Um, I was talking to a pastor this week, and, I, and we were both kind of bemoaning the fact that Easter, is, is, Easter and Christmas is tough for pastors, right? Because we have to come to the same scriptures that you have heard sermons from for you know decades upon decades. And we have to find some way to have a fresh insight to that. Now, it's not always successful, but it's something that, you know, every other time of the year, we get to pick what we want to speak on, and, and we get to let our imaginations go that way. But at Christmas and Easter, we are confined, we are shoehorned into very specific passages of the Bible, and it's difficult to kind of look at that and say, okay, what can I find? What can I say that hasn't been said before? And the reality is, Nothing. So hopefully um, we will uh, just have a good time this morning and kind of go into the scriptures. Uh, we're talking about echoes of choice, but let's recap uh, last week. Last week was um, last week was great, and if you missed it, we will have our sermons up online when we have our face when we have our website done, which we'll have done eventually before Jesus returns. I hope. Um, <laughs> Last week we looked at uh, we looked at this idea of covenant. Uh, we've been talking about the echoes of Easter, and we said that two things are needed in an echo: the sound and a reflecting object. So if you if you've ever gone somewhere and you shouted out, the sound is the first part, but there has to be something to reflect back the sound to you. That's what an echo is. That's what Easter is. The events that took place thousands of years ago, we look at, we examine, but we have to understand something that those events still have relevance to us today, and that is the echo. We talked about last week covenant. At the core of the Easter story is the word covenant. And I said at the, at, oops, sorry, I went a little too far. They got a little tricky happy. I said at the core of the Easter story is the word covenant. And at the center of Christianity is the word covenant. Last week we looked at covenant. And we said that sometimes we have a hard time reconciling God's law, his judgment. You read through the Old Testament and you kind of go, 
that's really violent. That's really bloody. Why does it have to happen that way? But then you get to the New Testament, Jesus, and you go, oh, this is so much more cute and cuddly. I like this. This is really dark and disturbing. I'm going to avoid this. I'm going to go to that. And what we want to make sure we understand is, is both parts reveal what God's, uh, what God's plan for us. And the reason the cross took place was because of the covenant that God made with himself. Back, and we, we looked at back in Genesis chapter 15. We had a definition of covenant to this. A covenant is a contract or agreement between two or more parties. Covenant is how God has chosen to communicate to us, to redeem us, and to guarantee us eternal life in Jesus. These truths revealed in the Bible are the basis of Christianity. The Bible is a covenant document. The Old and New Testaments are really Old and New Covenants. The word testament is Latin for covenant. The Bible is a covenant document, and what was amazing, all the emails I received and um, the conversations I had, is that many of you did not really understand the, the nature of covenant and really how Easter and covenant are, are so intertwined, you cannot uh, separate the true. And we closed off with uh, Galatians. Remember Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 to 14? Paul brings his whole idea of the Abrahamic covenant, because that's the covenant we looked at, and this idea of bringing it all together in, in one great uh, uh, scripture. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse that is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, this is a huge uh, uh, theological verse here. What, what, what Paul is trying to relate to the church in Galatia is simple. Jesus died on the cross because of the covenant God made with Abram. Remember, with Abram, God walked amongst walked the path of blood between the two animals. God made a covenant, and the covenant went like this. Abram, from this day forward, I will bless you and all after you. And remember, we, we talked about this last week. We are all descendants of Abram, right? And so, so God walked uh, through that, uh, that pathway of blood and said, whatever you do wrong, Abram, I'm going to bear the consequences of that, but you will get the blessings. In that one moment in time, God did something so incredible. He said, Abraham, you will be blessed, but I will be cursed. Easter was Jesus taking the curse of the covenant back in Genesis chapter 15. Jesus had to go through everything he went through because of the covenant that God made with us. Uh, sorry, made with himself. And now it's kind of important to understand when you understand the Easter story. So we're going to move on uh, this morning. Like, Technically, today's Palm Sunday, and those of you who are hoping to get some plant life and waving around in the air, that's not going to happen, but there's some grass out in the park there. You can, you're, they're more than welcome to help yourselves to it. Instead, we're going to move on to the next kind of major event in the Easter story, and that is the garden. And, of course, uh, we saw the uh, interpretation from the Passion of the Christ there. I love what Mel Gibson had done in regards to having this conversation with the enemy, with the devil. Now, just so you know, that's artistic license. The scriptures do not have this conversation. But what he's trying to convey is this, is this turmoil that Jesus was going through in this moment in time. Uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26 and, and obviously a few other verses. But Matthew 26 is this. 
Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, remember I said last week that whenever you have the Gospels, all four Gospels relaying the same account, and, uh, and, and it's repeated four times, you know it's important. The garden scene, this moment of time when Jesus wrestles with his choice in front of him, is recorded four times in the Gospel, which is great because we have four different views of what Jesus was wrestling with. And that's actually kind of important because what happens is that each Gospel has a focus has an audience they're writing to. And because of that, we get four different focuses on what, what's happening with Jesus, the uh, garden there. Now, sometimes when we read the Bible, when we read these stories, we kind of go, we kind of have a fairy tale kind of a mentality, right? Because we think to ourselves, oh, it's the Bible, it's biblical, but is it really real? Like sometimes you read these stories and kind of, I can't really see this in my mind. Well, let me kind of show you a picture of where Jesus had this account. This is, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is actually on the Mount of Olives. And if you want to kind of zoom out, you can see a, a bigger picture of it. Now, it's hard to kind of get a sense of it with all the buildings and the cars and all that. Spoiler alert, they didn't have that back then when Jesus was around. But you get the sense of, 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 of floral. It, it's a beautiful area. It's, it's well watered. So it, it's, it's a place where people would go for shelter from the sun. And it was beautiful. Uh, I found an artistic rendition of what it would have looked like in the time of Jesus. And you see like you, this hill with green, uh, with, all, with olive trees. Just so you know, also I found out as I do my research, they actually didn't eat olives. For those of you who love olives, that, I know that, that's a terrible thing to think about. But they didn't eat olives. That pickling and that way of preparing olives wasn't actually didn't exist back then. So they would just use olives for their oil. We'll talk a little bit more. But on the Mount of Olives, from there you can see Jerusalem. And of course you can see the temple. And just so you know, the uh, Mount of Olives was actually what they call a Sabbath day journey. Remember, and the Sabbath day laws were uh, such that you couldn't travel more than a certain distance. So whenever you hear about Jesus stopping at the Mount of Olives, it was a Sabbath day journey from uh, um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, right? So there's, it's a Sabbath day journey. So people would stop there and, and rest because they couldn't go any further. And when the Sabbath was over, then they would go on to Jerusalem. Now, what we want to look at this morning is this idea of the Mount of Olives. Sometimes when you read the Bible, what you may not realize is geography is very important to the Bible. Where things happen means something because something else has taken place there before. And what's interesting is that when you kind of start looking through geography of the Bible, you see this incredible uh, continuity of Scripture. So, for example... um, where, where, where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, where, uh, where, uh, where, where the uh, Mount of God was, where these things take place are, are, are places that actually exist. But God visits those places again throughout history. And the Bible records it. And the Mount of Olives is one of those places as well. Now, the name Har Hazem, which is uh, the Hebrew word of Mount of Olives, and Har Hamisha, which is the Mount of Anointing, come from many olive trees which flourish all over the mountain range. The oil was used to anoint kings, prophets, priests, and temple articles. Messiah, in fact, means anointed one. In the Bible, when you see an anointing service, you need to know that the olive oil that they're using comes from the Mount of Olives because it was sacred to the Jews. And so every time you would see uh, David anointed or king anointed or the emblems of the temple anointed, the oil was coming from the Mount of Olives. Why? Because this place was sacred to them. So what we want to look at this morning is we want to take a look at this moment in the garden. Now, 
If you were told that you have a couple of days to live, what would you do? Now, for most of us, I think what we would do is, um, you know, we would, we would gather our family and our loved ones around us to be with us in, in, in that time. And if you're me, they'd probably be like another 30 pounds of chicken wings as well. Because if I'm going to die, let's go big, right? So this idea of, of gathering people around you um, that, that, that are important to you is, is what you would do if you were told that your life was about to end in a few days. Jesus knows the time is coming for his life to be taken from him. What does he do? What does he do? He goes to the garden. Now, why I think that's interesting is because why doesn't he go seek his mother, his brothers, his sisters? Why doesn't he go to seek his friends, his family? Why doesn't he go to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' place, which is a place he goes to often to rest and to visit? Why does he go to the garden? That's, that's a question that kind of puzzled me when I was first going through this text. What I tend to do when I, when I kind of start writing a sermon, a couple of months ago, I, I took all the scriptures and, I, and I, I print them out and I put them on the wall and I just stare at them. And I kind of compare the passages. But then the first question that came to me is, Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows what's about to come. He knows that, 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 that his, his disciple is going to betray him. He knows this. Why go to the garden? Why, why keep yourself up all night long in, in, in this battle? And I think the reason, the reason for that is because is I think Jesus is trying to teach us something. Well, I think Jesus is trying to teach us many things. But one of the things I think Jesus is trying to teach us is how do we suffer? You ever had that moment where you have to have an appointment uh, with whether it's the bank or a doctor or uh, a professor or your academic dean or whatever it is. You have this appointment and you dread it. What if you know that there's news coming that you're not certain which way it's going to go, right? You're applying for a job. You're trying to get into school. You're, you're, whatever the circumstances you find yourself, we've all been in that moment where we are looking for news. We're looking for some kind of uh, uh, way of telling us what's going to happen. In that, and, and in that indecision, that uncertainty, we kind of going, what's God going to do? What's going to happen here? And then what happens when you get the news and it doesn't go the way you want what, how, what you, how do you respond? And I think the garden is actually kind of this, this glimpse into how are we meant to suffer. See, how we choose to suffer is how God chooses to grow us. See, in our suffering, we have a choice. And oftentimes, and I confess myself in this as well, is that the way we suffer, whether it's bad news given to us, whether it's something handed down to us that did not go the way we wanted to, what is inside of us comes out. And sometimes what is inside of us can be pretty ugly. And how we choose to respond in that moment is really important because it's exactly what God will do. And of course, Jesus, he went into the garden to show us how to suffer. And, and, and the thing is, he wasn't the first. The funny thing about the Mount of Olives is that in, in, in the Gospels, this is not the first time the Bible mentions the Mount of Olives. As a matter of fact, when you look through the Old Testament, there's about five to seven references, depending on which way you look at it. Uh, there's about five to seven references in the Old Testament to the Mount of Olives. But of those five to seven references, four of them have to do with kings. Four of them have to do with these kings who go to the Mount of Olives. So what I want to do is I want to take a look. I want to take you back into history where two kings went to the Mount of Olives looking for uh, what God wanted. And the funny thing with these two kings and Jesus, so really three kings, is they all do the same thing. 
They all respond to suffering. They all respond to uncertainty in the same way. And I think this has to teach us. So we're going to take a look at, at three kings, uh, two kings in the Old Testament, and of course, Jesus in the New Testament. And we're going to take a look at how they suffer. The first mention we have of the Mount of Olives actually comes from 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, you have this incredible story. Now, um, for those of you who may not know the Bible that well, I'm going to try to help you understand the context of what's taking place. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, this is what we read. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now, let me set the scene here, okay? David has been king of Israel. He is the first true king of Israel. And he has ruled and he has expanded the empire. David was the first real king, true king of Israel. And he was their greatest king ever. So now what we see here is something has happened in David's life. That has upset him. And of course, the thing that's happened is his son, Absalom, has, has, has overthrown David's throne. And now David is fleeing for his life. He's running away from his only son because his son wants to kill him. That's kind of a bad day. You know, that's, you know for those of you who you know, are parents, you, know, you may have problems with your, your children. I hope it never gets to the point of them wanting to kill you. They may say they want to kill you, but they're really all talk, Right. Except for some crazy people, there actually may be more than that. But and and really, when 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 you have a problem with your kids, it's 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 bad, but it's not that bad. David is literally fleeing from his son because his son is going to kill him. Okay? So this is the scene that we we jump into, and of course, David goes to the Mount of Olives, which is really interesting. Now, David leaves, and he leaves with his, his, his entourage. Now, his entourage consists of six hundred soldiers. And about, uh, we don't know exactly how many, but uh, people from his court, people who are still loyal to him. So some commentators estimate that there is about eight to 900 people leaving the temple with David to get away from there before, uh, uh, before Absalom gets there and before he kills everybody. Remember, in, in, in ancient times, what a king would do is when he took power, he would wipe out the previous regime. That's just good business. Why? Because then nobody from that regime is going to overthrow you. And you get rid of anybody who's loyal to you and you set up your own friends in positions of power. Why? They're loyal to you. And David knows that and those with him know that as well too. So David flees because he's, he's running for his life. Now look, at the, now look, look what happens next. As, as King David approached Bahuram, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera. And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all king's officials with stones. Though, <laughs> though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. I don't know who this guy is. But man, he has got... He, he, he is braver, maybe stupider than any human being ever in existence, right? He comes out by himself, right? Remember, he is a descendant of Saul. Saul has, was killed and was replaced by David. So he comes out. And imagine, just, just, just picture this. David's soldiers. Remember, David's soldiers were the mightiest warriors in existence. These were, and, and the Bible talks about the different feats they did. These are the people that are surrounding David. And this guy gets up on the hill and starts cursing David. It's pretty brave, 
pretty stupid, but pretty brave, right? So he's getting up there. He's like, ha, David, see, I knew it. I knew God was going to remove you as a king. I knew you were a terrible king. You should never have killed my father because uh, Saul's family blamed David for Saul's death, even though what Saul did was on his own. Like he, he did, he disobeyed God. So he gets up there. And he's cursing David. Ha, ha, David, see, I told you God was going to take you from power. I knew it. Now you're, now you're fleeing for your life. Ha, ha, ha. Right? He, he, and he's throwing things at him, right? This guy is over the top crazy. David's soldiers are with him, right? Look what the Bible says. Though all the troops and the special guard, special guard, these are the elite soldiers. These are guys in battle that have killed dozens of people on their own. And this guy has the audacity on the top of the hill to kind of curse David, right? Now, of course, that can only go on so long before a soldier gets angry. And look at the conversation that happens next. Then um, Abishah, son of Zeruah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over there and cut off his head. That's what you do. When somebody attacks an army, you say, hey, you know what? You're dumb. There's 600 of us. There's one of you. You're dead, right? You're dead. And David should have done this. Right? Because the morale of the group is pretty low at this point in time. You don't need this crazy person at the top of the hill screaming at you as well. And so a soldier does what a soldier does. He answers insults with violence. He says, David, okay? And, and, and that phrase, dead dog, okay? What he's saying here in Hebrew terms is he's, he's actually cursing him, right? Remember, uh, anything dead was unclean to a Jew. And, anything, and a dog was an unclean animal. So he's saying, this unclean person who's mocking you, let me cut off his head. Because that's what normal people do at this particular point in time, David. And David, really, I'm kind of mad right now. So I could actually use a little exertion. So let me go kill him. Now look at David's response. David never responds the way normal people do. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, 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 you sons of Zerai? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishah and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. David recognized something, that this person, as crazy as he was, was sent by God. Now, that seems kind of an odd thing, right? Don't you think God would want to send somebody saying, David... You're a good king. You're a good man. It's not your fault, David. It's not your fault. You're a good king. The fact is, this whole problem was David's fault. Because Absalom was doing something that David knew about and was building up to this. David should have responded before this. But because David was a bit of an overindulgent father, he kind of, well, Absalom, you know, he's, he's kind of like, he'll be okay. And finally, Absalom took over. So don't you think God would send somebody to say to David, David, it's okay. David, let me just play the song as you guys, you know, we're going to sing Kumbaya as you guys are, are, are fleeing for your life, right? But instead, God sent somebody to curse David, and David recognizes this. And look at this. Uh, leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. See the language he uses? Remember I told you in the Old Testament, there's a few covenants that are made, right? Abrahamic, the, the uh, Noahic, uh, David, uh, David's covenant, the Mosaic covenant, right? The, the covenant to David was a covenant that his line will never end. But right now, David is faced with the, the, with the challenge that maybe his line would end that day. And so David says, maybe, just maybe, if I suffer the way God wants me to suffer, 
just maybe God will have pity and mercy on me. And maybe then he will change my circumstances. That's the first king that uh, suffers on the mountain. The second king is uh, a little bit further from there. And before we look at the second king, let me show you a little background here. In 1 Kings 11, verse 7, it says this. On the hill east of Jerusalem, this is the Mount of Olives, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. This is background here. Now, understand something, right? Solomon is also one of David's sons. And when he becomes king, he says, you know what? I'm going to set up on the Mount of Olives pagan places of worship. Why? Because I've got a lot of wives who are from different tribes, and they're all bugging me for the temple worship. I'm like, ah, you know. So I, I got to do something. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use a Mount of Olives, and I'm going to set up these places of worship for these wives. The Bible tells me, tells me I should not have. Just so you know, real quick little Old Testament lesson for you. In the Old Testament, the Bible prohibits a man from having more than one wife. What are you talking about? There's lots of guys in the Old Testament that have more than one wife. Yes, they're called kings, and nobody could tell them no. Nobody else in the Old Testament had more than one wife, according to biblical law. Okay, so when Solomon amassed these, the, the, all these wives and concubines, the Bible says, he was not doing what the Bible said was correct. As a matter of fact, the Bible warned any man, says, listen, do not have more than one wife because... It's, 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 dis, it's displeasing to the Lord. And do not have wives from different, uh, different tribes, different um, races. Why? Because they have different gods. And they will take you away from the worship of me. Solomon didn't listen to that. That guy went overboard. Uh, we're actually going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes after the Easter series. Uh, we're going to take a look at the wisdom. It's called Wisdom of the King. That's the series I'm working on right now. But Solomon had many wives, many concubines. And so he had so many people to please. And so in his, in his um, sin against God, he set up all these pagan temples. Now, why, that, why is that important? Because another king comes along, and this king's name is Josiah. And Josiah is a righteous king. And Josiah becomes king when he's eight years old. Could you imagine becoming king when you're eight years old? Right? How does that twist your noodle? You know, one of the things that's very interesting is that we see these uh, celebrities who claim faith and insert your whatever celebrity you're thinking of right now. You know, like these people who, who, who when they, at the beginning of their careers, talk about how important God is to them and how important their faith is to them. And, you know, fast forward two years later or three years later, and they're, they're, they're dressed and doing things that are just like, how could a person do that, right? Power is something that we can't understand, right? Having all that money and all these people around you telling you what you want to hear, it twists you. And the kings of the Old Testament were examples of being twisted by all these people telling them what they want to hear. So when a king came along, and by the way, in, in the Old Testament, after David, the Bible tells us there's only eight righteous kings, eight righteous kings in the Old Testament. And when the funny thing is, the reason that's weird is because there's about 30 other kings in the northern and southern kingdoms, and we'll talk about that in the future. But there's only eight righteous, there's only eight people in the line of kings who decide to follow God. Why? It's too much power. So look at this now. Josiah comes along and says this. Then the king Josiah also desecrated the high places that were on were the east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption. Now, interesting here. The Mount of Olives is now called the hill of corruption because of all the pagan temples on it. They don't call it the Mount of Olives anymore. They call it the hill of corruption. 
The one Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashereth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the people of Ammon. So Josiah comes along and says, okay, we are going to serve God. And one of my first things we're going to do as a king is all those pagan temples on the Mount of Olives, we're going to get rid of them. We're going to destroy them. Why? Because we're going to turn our hearts back to God. But as Josiah is doing this, they discover something. Hidden away, back in the very uh, dark recesses of, of some building somewhere, they discover the Bible. Imagine this for a moment, right? These people have been living for so long, but because they've been following pagan worship, they, they forgot about the word of God. They forgot about the Bible. And one day, Josiah discovers it. Look what happens. When the king heard that the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. They didn't know what was right and wrong. Why? Because they hadn't gone back to the Bible. But when the Bible is discovered and it's read back to the king, the king goes, do you understand what's happening here? This is what God tells us is what he wants us to do. And this is what we're doing. We are doomed. So look what happens. He tore his robes. He gave the orders to Hilkiah, the priest of Achim and son of Shaphan. Akbar, son, this is tough to read through, just to bear with me here, okay? This is why some people don't read the Old Testament. I can't pronounce their names. I can't either. Akbar, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary of Asai, the king's attendant. He says, go and acquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. This book, the Bible, that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Josiah starts cleaning off the pagan temples and the Mount of Olives and discovers the Bible, the Torah, the book of the law. And he begins to read it and he says, we're doomed because we have not been living according to what God wants for us. And what happens is then is Josiah reads the book of the law and begins to reorient the, the kingdom. And finally, of course, we go to Jesus. In Mark's version of it, look what Mark says. In Mark chapter 14, they went to the place called the Gethsemane. And Jesus said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with them. And he began to deeply distress and trouble. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it is possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take the cup from me. Not what I will, but what you will. Three examples of three kings going to the Mount of Olives. I think there's three lessons that we can learn from them. But before we get to those lessons, I want to you a guy named Viktor Frankl. Those of you who maybe studied psychology, you will know Viktor Frankl. He is a Holocaust survivor. He is a professor of psychology. And he wrote a book called Suffering and Meaning. Remember, this is a guy that lived in the concentration camps. He worked in Dachau and Auschwitz. He was, he was uh, an eyewitness to the atrocities that the Nazis perpetrated upon the Jews. This is a guy that is intimately uh, associated and understood suffering. He wrote a book called Suffering and Meaning. And I want to show you a couple of the quotes because this is going to help us to understand what Jesus did, what David did, and what Josiah did. He says this in his book. In some way, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. He goes to say, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Remember, this is a guy that had seen... Uh, 
people marched to the ovens. He, he, these are people that were told to dig graves for people who were once alive, now were killed. Like He understands suffering. But in that suffering, he says, there's an important moment of choice. And finally he goes, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I, the reason I want to show you this is because I've been reading through Viktor Frankl for a little bit now. And when I understand what Viktor Frankl is saying in regards to uh, choice, in regards to suffering, then everything that Jesus did and everything that David did and Josiah did in their moments of suffering makes sense. Why? Because they chose to suffer differently. And there's three things they all did that's similar that helps us to understand how to suffer. The first thing they did in suffering is in times of suffering, surround yourself with community. What all three of these people did, David, Josiah, and Jesus, is he, they brought people with them. How often do we suffer, but we suffer alone, and then we wonder why no one cares? How often do we go through times of, of trial, times of testing, times of, 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 of brokenness, but we do it by ourselves? And then we get mad at God because he's not doing anything? We, we sit by ourselves and we go, God, if you would only magically... Magically, because that's kind of what we think about sometimes. If you could magically change my circumstances, then everything would be fine. And we tend to go, do, we do this on our own. We suffer by ourselves. But all three kings, they gathered people around them saying, listen, we have not done what God wants us to. We have not been the way God wants us to. Let us come together and figure it out. Jesus grabs his disciples and goes to the garden. He could have gone by himself because they're going to scatter anyways. Right, David has his has his, has his um, has his court and has his warriors around with him. These are soldiers he served with, fought with, bled with. Like he knows them. Like he has them to support him. Right, Josiah he gathers everybody, and I love what it says here: all the people from the least to the greatest, and says, "Let's go and let's talk to God." So, in times of suffering, in times of, of moments of, of of not certain what God's going to do, the first thing we need to do is surround ourselves. With, uh, with community. The second thing that we need to do in times of suffering, we need to seek God's strength. All three of these men did the exact same thing. In all three of the circumstances that they found themselves in, they sought after God. Look what David says. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of this curse today. Look what uh, Josiah says. Listen, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. And of course, Jesus, watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is talking about himself and his disciples. He says, my flesh is weak. Pray with me. Surround me, support me, because what I'm about to go through, what I'm about to experience is, is, is beyond anything that's ever happened in all of history and will never happen again in all of history. In the times of suffering, you need to seek God's strength. And when I say seek God's strength, you can't seek God's strength simply by yourself. You need community. The one flows out of the other. When you have people around you, there's something that's so special about saying to someone, can you pray for me? Can you pray with me? Can you support me? You ever get a text from a friend at a time uh, of, of, of that you know, you're going through a hard time and you get, you get a text and you know that you're not alone? Knowing that you're not alone in times of distress is more valuable than almost the answer. So in the times of suffering, we have to seek God's strength. And finally, in the time of suffering, we have to trust God, not the outcome. 
Remember, we've talked about this before. We've said we don't want to pray outcome-based prayers and prayers that look like this. God, if you do this, then I will do this. God, if you do what I want you to do, if you grant me my wish, rub my lamp, genie pops out, we call God. God, you do what I want you to do, and then I will love you and I will obey you. We don't do that here. We don't pray outcome-based prayers. Instead, we submit ourselves to God. Why? Because he's God. And so in times of, of, of suffering, in times of distress, I wish I could say to you, I know exactly how it's going to unfold. I wish I could say to you that in your moments of, 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 of testing, I wish I could say to you, it's going to work out the way you think it's going to. If I said that to you, I'd be lying. You know why? I don't know what life has. I just don't. And I wish life didn't work out the way it did sometimes, but it does. But if you trust the outcome, not God, then your spiritual life looks like this. Oh, yeah, I'm happy with God. He said what I want. Oh, no, things are bad again. Oh, yeah, I'm happy with God again. No, no, I don't trust God again. Oh, yeah, I'm happy. And I am like that. Between Monday and Sunday, it's like, ah, you know, Lord, what do you want? We, like, we have to stop basing our faith upon the outcome. Because if you base your faith upon the outcome, you will never be satisfied. Because the outcomes don't work out the way you want them to be. Let me close we talk about the sound and the reflection, right? We talk about, um, oh yeah, I got a little bit of a rant there. I forgot about these scriptures there. You got them. Okay, good. Okay, sound and the reflection. We said, it's okay, I'll send you my notes. Uh, the sound and the reflection, right? We say every week that we want to look at this story, this event, but we want to say, what's a reflection? How does, it, how does it actually meet to us today? Look what Hebrews says about the time of Jesus had in the garden. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and 9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Not because of the outcome, but because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. If you ever want to do an interesting study, you know, use Bible Gateway. It's just take two words, suffering and glory. And just search out the relationship. The funny thing is, is that when you do that, there's about 17 to 20 references, depending which which uh, Bible translation you use. Suffering always precedes glory. We want glory without suffering. Doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. Suffering always precedes glory. And of course, the reflection. We talk about the Mount of Olives. We talk about three kings going there. Well, there's a prophecy about the Mount of Olives. Remember when Jesus, he sends in Acts chapter 1? Right? The angel said, and why are you looking up? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to return, and the first place he's going to go is the Mount of Olives. The book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah says this about uh, Jesus' return. And the day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will all be plundered and divided up within, within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked and women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. Whatever the apocalyptic language the prophet is trying to convey, what, he, what we need to understand is that when Jesus returns, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. He's going to return to this place that he wept tears and said, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But 
whatever you will, not mine. Whatever your plan for me is not mine. Jesus in the garden brought his disciples there, prayed out loud apparently because they heard and he taught us how to suffer and he taught us how to respond in these moments of suffering, in these moments of trials, in these moments of pain. He showed us how to suffer and when he suffered, God glorified him. And when we suffer properly, and what I mean by properly is turning towards God, not shaking our fist at God because of what's happened, but instead turning to God. When we suffer properly, then God will glorify us. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray for each person here this morning. And God, I am well aware that as I've spoken about suffering, as I've spoken about pain, there are those here that are going through that right now. Whether it's in their marriages, their work, their school, friends, relationships, I don't know. But you do, God. I pray this morning that you would find us a people who suffer properly. And by properly, I mean that we would turn to you, not away from you. God, our lives can be messy. And sometimes the things that take place are because of other people. Because of other people's decisions. And we sit there innocent of the circumstances, but yet we bear the repercussions of it. God, I pray that as you suffered in the garden, as you cried out to God, I pray that we would use this as a template to understand how to suffer today. God, you've not guaranteed us an easy life. You've not guaranteed us blessing without end. But instead, what you've said to us is that you'll be with us in those times of suffering, that you will, you will walk alongside of us. And I pray, God, that your strength, your wisdom, the same that David used, the same that just King Josiah used, Lord, that, that would be ours today. Yeah, in our times of suffering, in our times of pain, that we would turn to you, that we would look to you. Lord, help us to suffer properly. Help us to choose our attitudes in those times. Not because it's easy, not because it's the thing that we want to do, but God, it's the thing that you desire to use in us. Your glory, Lord. And we want to live for your glory. Thank you for time together in Jesus' name. Amen.